This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, we close, like Starsky and Hutch. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we got some more of that pickle beer, best made pickle beer by the good folks over at Martin House Brewing Company. They have some other versions of this that I wish that I would have tried while we were there. They have a spicy pickle, a Bloody Mary pickle beer, but today it's best made pickle beer by Martin House Brewing Garage Grade 4 and a half bottle caps out of 5. Cheers to our friends. A big cheers is due, in fact. First up, cheers to Matt and Trina in Parts Unknown. And a big We Like Your Jib to Ashley in Greenville, Tennessee. And there's another Ashley out there, but she is in Rayford, North Carolina. Cheers to you. Well, hell, let's cheers all the Ashleys. And a big cheers to Amanda in Washington, D.C. Next up, cheers to Terrell and Amanda in Denham Springs, Louisiana. And last but certainly not least, we have a big Ron Swanson please and thank you that goes out to Dr. Roy from Round Rock, Texas. Everyone we just mentioned, they went to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and helped us out with this week's beer fund for the beer run. And for that, we thank you. B-W-E-R-U-N, beer run. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, check out our bonus show called Off the Record. We love to do case updates every other week. And if you're not listening, then you're not nasty. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
When APD Sergeant John Jones was asked about how he would describe the yogurt shop crime scene, he simply said, wholesale carnage. Now, as to the crime scene and how things were found, we're going to review that now. But keep in mind the uphill battle for crime scene techs, the detectives, and the arson investigators. This place was a mess. And think back to our trailer at the top of yesterday's show when Sergeant Jones wrote a note to the district attorney that said robbery plus sexual assault plus multiple child victims plus bondage plus gunshot wounds plus fire, heat, smoke, water damage plus no known witnesses equal the homicide, arson, and DA's worst nightmare. Put a big underline under fire, heat, smoke, and water damage. So obviously smoke, heat, and fire damage from the fire. The fire at one point getting so hot that the shelving unit melted along with items on it. And because of the fire, we're also going to have water damage at the crime scene. One from the powerful blast of the firefighters' hoses, but compound that with the fire having caused a PVC pipe break, which was flooding the store before the firefighters were on the scene. Let's also keep in mind that no one arriving to the fire is expecting to find murdered victims. Of course, unfortunately, you have fatal fires, but here we have an arson set with the purpose of covering up the murders and the crimes committed between the times of 11.03 p.m. and 11.48 p.m. I have said time and time again, Captain, how much I hate a situation when emergency services are responding to one type of call, when in all actuality, they are in fact responding to a scene where much more has gone down. It's always difficult for the investigators because you often cannot undo the actions taken by those responding to the scene. Like we know, fire destroys evidence, water destroys evidence, and it's already a difficult crime scene because it's a public place. There's going to be a lot of evidence that there was multiple people in that building mm-hmm. at one point during that day. Yes, and again, the responders responding to one type of call and then finding out something else it always severely hurts the investigative process. Some examples, Mara Murray, they're responding to a broken down vehicle or a single car accident when this actually was also a missing person, possibly abduction, possible homicide. Yeah, or John Benet Ramsey, they're responding to a kidnapping, not a murder in the house. Here we have a fire and a fire coming from a restaurant. They likely have responded to many of these types of calls and other local food vendors, grease fires, or the store closes and someone simply left a burner on. It happens all of the time. Here, we have arson to destroy evidence to further cloak the killer's identities as they flee into the night. Well, and like you said, this place is known to close at 11. So when you see that there was a fire and it's almost midnight, as first responders, you're thinking all this fire happened after people locked up and went home. So what else was found at the scene? Well, in the process of prosecuting two of the arrested four, the prosecutor went into a lengthy and graphic description of the crime scene. A little warning here. I know this is a true crime show, but this crime scene is particularly gruesome. Prosecutor Robert Smith said that firefighters had to break down the front door of the store because it was locked with the key still in the lock. He said firefighters could not see into the store because of smoke. After the fire had been put out, 
They discovered Amy Ayer's body first, and then the bodies of the other three girls. Ayers was found lying in the middle section of the store. That's his words. To be clear, this is still the back room, but she is found in the front portion of this back room. The other three victims were located at the very back of the store, near the melted shelving unit and the back door. Amy Ayers was found without clothes and on her side face down. Near her was an empty cash drawer. The medical examiner determined her cause of death to be strangulation and gunshot wounds to the head. A 22 caliber bullet was recovered. The other three were found in the back portion of the store, in the back room. Sarah Harbison was found gagged with her hands tied behind her. Investigators determined that she had been sexually assaulted. Smith said her body was extensively burned. Eliza Thomas was found on top of Sarah Harbison in a similar manner. Her body and face were burned beyond recognition. And she was identified by dental records. So do they think accelerant was used on their bodies? No. And, well, and that's frankly a difficult question to answer because through, through the course of time, the fire investigation and their determinations have changed or been modified, mm-hmm. let's say, over the years. So in the original investigation, and I have a good portion to cover this later, there was general thought that there was not much of an accelerant used at all. And we'll circle back to that. But we have Smith who said that investigators believe that Jennifer Harbison's body was originally on top of the other two girls. However, she was found nearby having been moved either by the fire or the blast of the water hoses. And Smith makes it pretty clear to the court that they believe all the girls were dead before the fires were started. The prosecution reasoned that since all had been shot in the head, their bodies were moved and stacked as they were all found face up. But that statement isn't completely clear about the crime scene. Exactly. So what he's referencing here is the bodies of the three girls that were found at the very back of the store. Because we know Amy Ayers was found in a slightly different location. She's found face down. However, the other three girls were found face up, leading them to believe because of the way that they were shot that they had to have been moved after they were shot and killed. Because the fire was so intense, the crime scene unit had to sift with shovels and screen to find evidence. Eventually, they found some bullet shells. In the corner near the rear door of the store, investigators found a pile of burned clothes. Included were remnants of denim fabric and clothing from all of the girls, as well as a heart-shaped belt buckle that had belonged to Amy Ayers. However, police teams never recovered the belt that went with this belt buckle. A ring that belonged to Sarah Harbison's boyfriend was also found. So this was a ring that she wore on her finger, and she took the time and made the effort to take that ring off for some reason, is what Smith says. Right. Sarah's wallet was also found there. Again, this is another indication. I don't know if there was money in the wallet, but... Just another example of maybe money's not the prime goal here. Yeah, I mean, this case is very confusing because even just like having the victims undress, what's what's the purpose? If you know that you're going to start a fire to try to get rid of some evidence, what would be the purpose of having them undress? Well, the other crimes committed that night will dictate 
the purpose of having them undressed. Yeah, obviously. Those. The guns used to kill the girls was a twenty-two caliber and a three-eighty caliber weapon. They have never been found, but could be identified by the characteristics left on the discharged bullets. So we've not located these weapons, but if they were ever located and tested in comparison to the bullets used to kill the girls, mm-hmm. we would be able to determine if it was, in fact, the match. Well, the strangulation feels a little personable to me. Personable or necessary, right? right. So we have one victim that was that was strangled, and, but she was also shot twice. Right. So what that tells me is there's a chance that someone may have thought that she was dead when, in fact, she was not. Or maybe she put up a fight. This is going to lead us to hold back information. So those of you that have listened to this show, longtime listeners, you already know what hold back information is. However, if we have anybody, a new listener, maybe somebody from Texas that wants to check out our coverage of this case because of the 30-year marker coming up, or maybe just a drunk listener that stumbled onto our show by accident. Oh, yeah. Fell. Fell into our show. Fell right into the garage. Hold back information is pretty simple stuff. It's information that only the experts, only the law enforcement agency investigating the case and the medical examiner's office would know. You are simply holding on to this information and holding it back from the public because, especially in a high-profile crime or high-profile case, as is the Austin Yogurt Shop murders case, you will have false confessions. And we will have plenty of them in this case. And so it's important to hold back some specific details so that when those false confessions start coming in, you can weed out the persons that did not commit this crime. And we won't go into the the psychology of why or who would make a false confession. We pointed that out and went over that quite a bit in our first time around in this case. But let's review the holdback information here, Captain. This was decided on December 7th. So the next day, the next afternoon, less than 24 hours after the girls were killed, the Austin Police Department decides we are going to make a list. And they created a list of 13 pieces of evidence to be held back. And those items were, number one, how and where the fire was started. But do we know where the fire started? The fire has always been a bit of a pisser here in this case here, Captain. You're a pisser. For seven years, we were told, well, again, they're holding back this information. But later we learned that for seven years, the arson investigators all agreed that the fire started on the shelves, that shelving unit that melted. Now, this shelving unit is located near where three of the bodies were recovered. But it's always been believed that the fire started like on the second or third shelf and was started using things that would easily go up in flames, right? We have like paper products on this shelf. We also have styrofoam products on the shelving unit. Anybody that's ever been in Cub Scouts and tossed a a styrofoam cup into a campfire, you know how quick those babies go up. There were also things on this shelving unit that would have been highly flammable, right? Like paint cans, aerosol cans, things of that nature. Right. They're basically using that as their starter. When confessions start coming in, 
One thing that I found that was completely bizarro is that a lot of the confessions, we have people saying that the fire was started on the victims, that they piled up the victims and then put some type of accelerant in several of the confessions. They say lighter fluid from like, like a Zippo can lighter fluid douse the, that on top of the victims and then lit them. That seems to, that narrative seems to have changed right around the time that they're looking to convict these four individuals that they arrested. The next piece of holdback information, number two, the key in the front door. We've already discussed that, how they would put the key in, lock it from the inside before closing up for the whole night and then leave through that door and then eventually sliding that key back underneath the door. Right. This is something that would not be known to many people outside of employees of the ICBY store. Number three, how much money was taken? We can't say for certain how much money was taken. We have in our notes $540 was missing from that night. Number four, how the girls' bodies were arranged. So the stacking process and where they would be located inside the store is valuable information. Because again, we're going to have confessions come forward and they're not going to be able to put the bodies where they were eventually found. But when you have so many first responders, I think you said there was over 50 firefighters at the scene. Nearly 50. I don't know how many actually went into the store itself. It's a good possibility that some of this information would be leaked out to the public. Yes. And and it absolutely was. And Austin PD admits that over the years that they were aware that somehow some of this information got out. In fact, but but at the end of the the day, if you're a first responder responding to a, Uh, what you think is a fire and now you're dealing with four women that were brutally murdered. That's something that weighs on you. If you end up telling a couple people because you're struggling with that, you know, I I know that it it hinders an investigation, but these first responders are human. Right. But there's a lot of information on this list that won't be obvious to just somebody responding to the fire. Right. And the other thing, too, here, we're not sitting on this information pretending that only one person knew the answers to all 13 of these. Right. We sit here 30 years later and don't know the answers to all 13 of these ourselves. Well, so but it, we still believe that the killer does. The killer, yes, then would have known the answers to these questions or the, the holdback information. Number five, what was used to bind the girls? Number six that the office was not entered. That's a very interesting one because again, we have a situation. Remember that small office has a locked door on it and they were able to determine that that door was not accessed. So yeah, look, a lot of these back areas, they're not like, and I don't know what kind of door this would have been, but like when I used to teach and teach guitar lessons in a strip mall, like those back office, there were chintzy doors it wouldn't take much to break one of those down if the door was locked. You could huff and puff and blow the door down. But it, but I agree with you on the sense that I don't know how much stealing money or getting money for this crime had much to do with anything. The floor safe is in the office. Right. Even if you don't know that a safe is in this office, if you take $540 or whatever the amount ended up being from the register you're probably looking for some more cash. 
the office, whether you think there's a safe in there or not, is the place where that additional money would be. You would at the very least access it and look around. Hell, I worked at a place where we had a break in overnight. They couldn't figure out how to open the safe. So they removed the whole entire safe. They just took it with them. Right. And it was located like a week or two later, about two or three hours away on the side of the highway with the door missing. So people get creative when they're looking for money here. We got a couple people that are offenders that either aren't looking for money or can't fight their way out of a paper bag. Number seven, the office key was still under the cash register. Okay. Again, you would need this key unless you're going to huff and puff and blow that door down. You're going to need this key to get into the locked office. Right. And I cannot imagine a situation where I am holding guns to children and demanding to know where the money is that one of them doesn't offer up that here's the key to the locked office in the back. No, because it was, it was company policy to drop the money at the end of the night. It was also company policy that this is where they would leave their personal belongings. So Eliza Thomas arrives at work just before 7 p.m., and she places all of her personal belongings inside of that locked office to which later the next day when they're going through the crime scene, they find all of her personal items still inside of that office. Yeah, I agree that with a gun to your head, you're not going to hold back that information. Number eight, the caliber of weapons used, and we know that to be a 22 and a 380. Of course, the, the whole city is going to know that guns were used. The key here is that they do not know what calibers were used. They also would not know that two different guns were used. And this is also something that the firefighters would not know when responding to the scene. Right. And very likely something that even crime techs and medical examiners would not know until later in the autopsy process. But it's also evidence that points to more than one attacker. Yep. Unless you're double fisted, we have more than one killer here. Number nine, that two pairs of the victim's underpants were missing, never found at the scene. Now, I guess it's not too hard to believe that they may have just gone up in smoke because we have a fire here, but it seems to me like they're pretty thorough about what was found at the scene and what was not. Right. Number 10, this is key, man. And this is one that has really stuck with me throughout the years. Amy Ayers was missing her leather bomber jacket. Okay, so there's a little bit of a story here. From my understanding, this bomber jacket was a men's or a, a boy's bomber jacket. And I believe this belonged to her older brother at one point. But it was like one of her favorite things, you know, something that she wore. This is also another indication that, you know, this is a, a girl coming up and she's realizing, hey, I'm going out with friends on a Friday night and I'm starting to feel like a real teenager here. Mm -hmm. because I'm doing, you know, older kids stuff. And so while we say money doesn't seem to be of the utmost importance to these perpetrators, one of them went out of their way to take the leather bomber jacket from the scene. See, to me, that feels personable. It seems like, I mean, yeah, look, it could just be that they fancied that jacket. But to me, you start leaning to the, towards the idea, did these attackers take two pairs of the victim's underwear. Do they take this jacket for other reasons? 
other than they might just like the jacket. Could be some kind of trophy if, yeah. we're, if we're talking about uh, serial offender or, or otherwise. Number 11, Amy's bruise under her chin from a blow of some kind. So at some point she is struck under the chin with either an item or a fist that left a bruise under her. Now, one thing we need to point out here, Captain, that's key to this case and to the understanding of the crime scene itself is the three girls that are found in the very back of the yogurt shop are significantly more burned, charred, and damaged than Amy Ayers. So where you're going to have a lot of information about Amy Ayers, that's simply due to her proximity to where the fire started, right? right. The fire started in one location and it spreads through there. From It spreads from there. Well, we have first responders arriving on the scene probably, well, not probably, it's within minutes of the fire being set. We don't know exactly what time the fire was set, but we do know that the place was not on fire at 11.03 when somebody hit that no sale button. We have the fire being reported at 11.47 p.m. Number 12, that Amy was strangled and what she was strangled with. Number 13, that Amy was shot twice with two different caliber guns. All of our other victims were only shot once. And as we said, and as noted in Who Killed These Girls, this list will have to be revised several times. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. 
when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash T-C-G. That's mintmobile.com slash T-C-G. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash T-C-G. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Thank you for joining us. You smell lovely. Cheers. So there's so many things about this case that make me wonder, like, did they have a plan? Did these attackers have a plan to take out one of the victims right away? So then they have less victims to try to control. Possibly. And it's, it's a sad situation. Of course, again, we will never really know until the 
proper person is found and locked up. Or persons. Or yeah. persons, correct. However, I, I think that we can probably deduce some things about the the attackers and their actions and their plan. And this is one thing that I thought that has always been another misstep in this investigation. Now, I want to be clear here and, and give kudos where it, it should go, and that should go to the Austin PD in this regard, where Austin PD basically said in this investigation, we are only concerned about the who. We are not going to spend our whole time spinning our tires on the why. Right. So, But sometimes the why leads you to the who. Well, and when you're sitting here at our position, Captain. In a smelly garage. We have to examine the who, what, why, when, and how come. I think I threw some extra things in there that weren't yeah. necessary, but well, you well, get what I'm talking That's what our about. show does. We throw in a couple of things that are not necessary. <laughs> yeah. So I think here, when I review this, what I'm seeing is a situation where maybe you're not so worried about being outnumbered if you are the perpetrator, right? There's four girls. You're going to be outnumbered unless you have four perpetrators or more. The situation that you do have is we have a lot of terrible things going on in a short period of time. So there's a lot of moving parts and pieces within the course of about 45 minutes is really what I want to focus on. And in 45 minutes, we have sexual assault. We have terrorizing the girls. We have robbery. We also have an arson that's set. And we have the the perpetrators successfully fleeing the scene right. all within about a 45-minute span. Now, what that indicates to me, if you're going to set an arson you're somewhat of a sophisticated criminal, and I don't mean people always get this wrong. They right. think, oh, here Nick goes calling some maniac a, a brilliant Genius. individual. Yeah. I'm not saying that this was any type of high IQ criminal here or criminals. I'm simply saying criminally sophisticated, meaning that they understand that this fire will destroy evidence, that this fire will help, this fire will increase the probability and the likelihood that they are not caught. And so this fire is set for that purpose and that purpose alone. Well, and also it's when you're calling somebody criminally sophisticated, you're basically saying they're they're a bigger douchebag. They're a bigger ding dong ass frog. You know, that's what you're saying. It's not a compliment. You're you're putting the individual down. That means that this dirtbag thought more about this crime and how not to get caught. The other thing too, that the arson indicates to me is that high level of concern of being caught and getting away with what they did. So you're going to want to not be detected and gunshots are loud. And this is a short period of time. I don't think that you are using those guns until you have to which would be at the very end. When when you are done doing whatever it is that you set out to do, that is what you plan to do at the end right. of those events. No witnesses, burn the place, and flee. And so I think that the shooting and, unfortunately, the additional injuries to Amy Ayers were items that were not necessarily planned but were necessary because... She did not, and I, I hate to even say these words, but here you go. She did not die when the others did. Every one of the other girls we shot, they died as expected. Amy Ayers did not die 
as expected. And therefore we end up with the second gunshot. We end up with the strangulation at some point. And we have some of the medical information that will back that thought up. Then assuming that the gunshots happen at different times. Yes. I don't believe for a second that she was shot at the exact same time with two different guns. Well, not at the exact same time. I'm just, you're saying that it could be seconds later though. Right. I mean, we're talking the amount, I'm not going to go into it because I don't have the the stomach for it and I don't have the heart to do it, but just sit back and think without forcing me to do this, how many horrible crimes happen in a span of just 45 minutes. And that's being, that's giving extra time. I don't even think they were there that long. No. And so you know, you're, you're doing things very quickly and the science that will back up the thought of her being shot twice and why is simple. Amy Ayers was shot through the back of the head, the same with the same 22 caliber gun used on the other girls. But in her case, the bullet did not enter the brain. Right. And so I think that is why we have, she's reacting to this and then the killers are reacting to her reaction. You know, we saw in the Lane Bryant shootings, several people, they're all laid down the same way, face down on the floor, Mm -hmm. gun to the back of the head. And one of them twitched or moved or something happened and it didn't work. It didn't kill one of them, but it killed the rest of them. Well, and it's also possible that this could be a sign that that there was uh, soft bullets and meaning that those bullets would have been, bullets can become soft over time. And so these bullets could have been older bullets. That's possible. Yes. And the thing here too is a 22 caliber gun is typically used in a situation. And I don't, I don't want to paint the picture of, of anybody thinking that this is some type of mob hit. A 22 caliber gun is typically used in a crime where your plan is to shoot the individual in the head and kill them with one shot. Why? Because most of the time a higher caliber bullet will do what is called a through and through, meaning that it enters the body at some point and it goes through the body and exits the body at some point. Mm-hmm. With a 22 caliber bullet, you want to do, you're looking to do as much internal damage as possible if you want to kill somebody with one bullet. So a 22 is often used because it's not powerful enough in most cases to do a through and through shot. It will go into the body and then it bounces off of a lot of stuff, doing a whole lot of damage in the process. Well, I think it makes people wonder when looking into this case, are there separate victims? Is she separate from the- Yeah, I don't see a situation here. And again, we don't know. We're, we're kind of guessing here. But I don't see a situation that, one, that there was even enough time to, to do it in this manner, that that somebody went out of their way to kill one and then- terrorize the other three or the reverse of that kill the other three and terrorize one right for an extended period of time i'm seeing again they're doing something that's necessary and what's really interesting here is that we're talking about a difference of a few minutes and i mean this is sad and heartbreaking to think about but the difference of a couple of minutes could be the time that goes by when they learn that what killed the other girls didn't kill Amy. And so had they not figured that out in that very brief time period, she may have been able to get up and flee 
And I think that that's right. what she was in the process of doing. I think she, she was crawling away from the other bodies. I think she was shot originally in the very same locale as the other three girls. And at some point she's reacting to the situation and crawled away or started to flee somehow mustered up the strength to try to get away. And unfortunately our killers are still in that room or still present and have the awareness to see her reaction. Well, it's also confusing because like you said, law enforcement is not going to sit around and try to figure out the why, but maybe they're not going to try to sit around and figure out the why, because it seems very confusing in this case. You have money left behind. So you have a room that they didn't even go into, which has a safe. You would think that if they had much knowledge of this business at all, that they wouldn't have left that bag of money behind, nor would they leave that safe behind. So what was successful in killing the other girls and was attempted on Amy is what is called a contact gunshot wound. This is where there is evidence that proves that the gun was right next to or up against the skin right at the time that the gun is fired do you have a gut feeling yourself because you know this is the second time that we've been been able to look at, into this case do you have a gut feeling as to motive or or why unfortunately i think the motive here was sexual assault and probably multiple sexual assaults that's what I lean towards as well. It would not surprise me if these perpetrators were previously in the yogurt shop, and that could be earlier that day or could be the week before or days before. I think that they were well aware that this was the type of location that is secluded. It's a weird word to use, being that it's a public place, but it's secluded as soon as those doors are locked. For the night, as soon as you turn that key on, on that front door, nobody's coming in. And I think that this is a situation where they could have either the perpetrator stumbled upon an ideal situation for what it was that they wanted to do, mm -hmm. or they came there knowing or expecting to find that. And that might mean that they scouted this location in advance. The other thing too, when you go, all right, well, maybe they stumbled onto a location in a situation that was ideal for what they wanted to do. You wonder where else they went that day and night looking for the ideal situation. You know, did they walk down to Mr. Gaddy's and go, you know what? There's too many males in here. There's too many employees working all at once. Let's try a different spot. Yeah. Or it could be, it could be a situation where the, uh, look, I think this is, possibly coming from a local individual and somebody that's been there multiple times around closing time and went they're they're having high school girls close up the shop this there's no there's no manager on a staff and on like you said seclusion sounds strange like you said because it's a public place but first of all the the major places around there are shutting down at nine o'clock mm -hmm. The other places are shutting down at 10. Mm -hmm. So now that gives you a whole hour that if you are from that area, you know that place is one of the only places open past 10. So now that that's how it makes it even more secluded. And it's a yogurt shop. There's some, sometimes when you go into a yogurt shop or the last couple times I've gone into an ice cream shop, you're the only customer in there. 
you get your ice cream and you, and you, you go. And strangely, Captain, this case reminds me a lot. You know, people think of Las Cruces Bowl or Las Cruces Bowling Alley, that case when, when, right. when you review Austin Yogurt Shop case. And yes, there's a lot of similarities, and I'm not, and I'm not here sitting pretending that they were perpetrated by the same individuals. In Las Cruces Bowl, we have a pretty good description of those who, the two men that carried out that crime. But they are similar situations. What I liken this crime to, and if I were to be, air quotes here, profiling our offenders, and I think I, I'm of the belief that you are, that we're looking at two people, possibly three. I cannot look at the evidence at the scene and believe that one person carried this out. I think that it gets difficult to go much higher than three as far as the number of perpetrators. But this crime reminds me a lot of the Cheshire murders, where we have two individuals that are going into a home. They know what to expect. They know who they think will be inside of this home. And they sexually assault, they murder, and they attempt to burn down the place. And once caught, they're going to try to sell it to the public that, oh, we were just there to rob the family. And things got out of control. Things got out of hand. We panicked. And then we ended up killing three of the four family members and setting the place on fire. What I would be looking for, and you don't want to, I don't, I'm all for profiling and I'm a big fan of it, I guess you would say. Uh, it sounds like a really terrible choice of words. But you don't, you don't want your theory or your thought process to, to put blinders on you in the course of your investigation. But over the course of years, when you don't have the answers and you've not arrested someone, you've not locked anybody up that sticks – you got, I think you got to start using those methods. And what I would have been looking for is probably two individuals that were recently released from prison and probably individuals that have committed similar types of crimes in the past. And what I mean by that is probably not murder, but I'm probably looking for somebody, one or two individuals with sexual assault cases, one or two individuals with robbery cases. Maybe one of them's a robber, one of them's sexually assaulted in the past. That's kind of where, what my gut tells me, to me, it looks like a crime of not just opportunity by the perpetrators, but also a crime that they were, they were looking to go out and do something, maybe not of this magnitude, but something horrific in nature. We've talked about this before, you know, with Bundy and other types of individuals that, that some of these acts, they become addicted to it. And I think what I'm seeing here is somebody that needed to do this for whatever reason as disgusting as that is to say well my gut feeling tells me that there was two attackers but i also think that it's possibly a local somebody that was making those threatening phone calls or those prank calls i think it's closer to home and maybe more personable than people think it would be and also, it's such a heinous crime that if there was more than two attackers, I think somebody would have told somebody by now, somebody would have confessed. Yes, and that that's traditionally how it works. The more perpetrators you have of a crime, the higher probability that one of them at some point tells somebody. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just math, baby, garage math. And the thing is, 
People do it because it either weighs on their conscience or they get drunk and tell somebody or they, they tell somebody in a threatening manner. But yeah, the number of perpetrators, the higher that goes up, the higher your probability goes up that one of them tells somebody. And my guess is that at least one of these individuals is currently in prison on rape charges. Yeah, and here's the thing that I would really like to know with that. We talked about that DNA evidence that the FBI has. They've got a match or some kind of hit on it. And and I don't fully understand it and not going to pretend to, but um, I, I would really like to know where exactly that they got their hit. I do want to touch on something, Captain, before uh, we get too far along here that you had referenced earlier. Um, one interesting tidbit that I found along the way in my research for this week's case is that a woman by the name of Reese Price, I believe her real name is Teresa or Therese Price, but she goes by Reese Price. At the time of the yogurt shop murders, she was 24 years old. She was a manager that worked at that ICBY store for seven years. The thing that I find interesting here is that she was actually scheduled to work that night. And a week or so in advance had made arrangements with one of the girls that ended up working that night to trade shifts. Right now. I'm not trying to paint a picture of anybody came there looking for Reese price. And this was the result, but you said no manager on staff, no manager on duty. This is a, you know, and I said an ideal situation for what it is that I believe they were looking to do a 24 year old woman being the manager at this store doesn't change. If you're scouting this location, I don't think that changes you from two 17 year olds to go on. Nope. Can't do it here. Nope. You're, you're correct. If, if it's a sexually motivated crime. Yeah. The other thing that I found interesting too, in uh, Reese Price's involvement with the Austin PD, she was God bless her. She was very helpful to their investigation and helped in any way possible that she possibly could. One thing that, that she passed along to the detectives was she said, you know, me and one of the other girls, we were receiving harassing phone calls at the ICBY store and me and one of the other girls were receiving similar types of calls at our homes, at our residence. And she had even told them that there was a situation where she thought that she was hearing some noises when she was working one night and she thought that the noises were coming from the roof. That's creepy. She goes into the men's restroom. Remember, they got to clean up before they leave at night. And she says later in the men's restroom of that ICBY store that she found a ceiling tile that had been moved and on the toilet seat found footprints or shoe prints on the toilet seat. That's a weird way to take a dump. She's telling police that it's her opinion that the noises that she heard was someone coming through the ceiling and dropping down into the back part of their store. Her belief is that, again, this is like a strip plaza. It's her belief that you could access the ICBY store via ceiling from the connecting stores. This is something we, we don't have to put a lot of thought in it. It's not a theory that we have to circle, underline, and go crazy about, but it's something to consider. And it's an interesting piece 
of this investigation. And it's interesting information that was passed along to the detectives. Yeah. My gut feeling is there's a lot more to this. Not, not only are they getting threatening calls at work, but the individuals that are making those threatening calls to the two girls then figure out where they live and they start making calls to their house. That lead, those things should be taken very serious. Interestingly enough here, Captain, one thing that I find completely fascinating, and I think that we sit here and probably share the same belief today, 30 years later, is the prevailing theory in the Austin Yogurt Shop murders case. And that prevailing theory seems to be that whomever those two men were sitting at that booth at 10.47 p.m. that night, they most likely are the attackers and the killers. Now, I say most likely because we can't say it definitively. What we do know is this, that it took several months, which is kind of weird to me, but it took several months for customers to come forward and say, hey, I was this person. I purchased this that night and I was in there about this time and this is what I think that I saw or heard while I was there. It did take a, you know weeks and months to collect all those people. And police were actively reminding the public, hey, we need you to come in here and tell us. We, it's very important. This is their words. Quote, it's very important that they come forward. We consider any knowledge from anyone who was in that shop before closing to be very valuable. Police ask anyone with information to call and they give their local police number. But when we talk about these two individuals sitting at that booth, it's my understanding, Captain, that those are the only two individuals that have never come forward. These are the only two people that we know to have been in the store that night based off of customer testimonials that have not been identified. Right. It could be, and it is possible that these two individuals were from out of town. They were just there like every other customer with no harmful intentions at all. And they left before the store closed and they're not from the area and months went by and they, they just never came forward or didn't do not remember being there on the night that was in question. That is a possibility. I think it's awfully slim, but it certainly is a possibility. If we rule that out, then we have to say these are these two are probably the killers. And again, I think it's more likely that it's two killers and not just, oh, we're going to be in the store with the potential of being seen by other individuals. And then once they lock the doors, we're going to then open a back door or open up the front door to let another person in. The only people ever convicted in this case were the two individuals that eventually were released from prison and they were convicted based off of their confessions. And we could go through that, but I don't think that we should because you can listen to episodes 81 and 82 where we go through that muck and mire quite a bit. At the end, Captain, what we have is of the four boys that were arrested to convicted, the guns did not match. Right. It was a 22 caliber gun that led them, that led Austin PD to these boys. Their 22 caliber gun, they ran ballistics on it. It does not match up with the 22 that was used at the yogurt shop murder. So the guns didn't match and the DNA didn't match. Years after the murders, advanced DNA testing revealed a bombshell, the bombshell that, that nobody wanted. We were happy when two people were locked up for this case. But those results showed that DNA that was found on Amy Ayers did not match any of the suspects. And to be clear, 
it didn't match anyone in any national database. So yeah. the two that were convicted, the DNA that was found on our victim does not match the two that was convicted. It also does not match the two that weren't convicted, the two that were arrested and the charges were dropped right. by the grand jury because they didn't believe that they had enough evidence here. So, But also with a, such a horrible crime, like this is truly done by demons. How many, it's surprising to me how many confessions they have got. Yes, and... You know, Austin police, they readily admit that over 50 people, approximately over 50 people That's have, insane. yeah, have confessed to this. Now I want to address something real quick here. If you look at Wikipedia, there's an entry that says that one of the confessions included Kenneth McDuff, who's an individual that we covered extensively in episodes 81 and 82. He's a serial killer. There's no question about that. Here's where the question comes. According to that Wikipedia entry, Kenneth McDuff on the day of his execution confessed to the yogurt shop murders. I've looked high and was left dry. My friend could not find any credible publication or person stating that they heard him or, or right, heard the confession, heard on this confession. Bed. Yes. Yeah. He did have some, some last words, but, they did not include anything about this case or what I could find any other case. Now, he's certainly capable of committing such horrific acts. But again, review episodes 81 and 82. We go into why we don't believe that he is our guy. So then the question becomes, FBI has this DNA. Why aren't they releasing it? I mean, they, do they just not have a match? Does it match somebody w with a high profile? Is it does it match somebody that they have no evidence against other than this this DNA match? Wouldn't that be enough? Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because let's review that real quickly here again. In 2017, another potential breakthrough emerged. An Austin detective submitted DNA evidence found in one of the victims into a database that searches YSTR DNA samples, a type of DNA profile that forensic investigators use to identify male relatives of suspects. A match was found. The Austin Police Department requested more information about the identity of the matching donor, but the FBI has refused to release any information, saying a federal statute, so it's the federal statute, that prohibits it from disclosing identities of anonymous donors. So I want to know more about what is an anonymous donor, right? And I want, I want to learn the ins and outs of that. Right. Despite these hurdles, the families have continued to work to keep the case in the forefront. Their efforts have led to new crime fighting initiatives at the state and federal levels. Again, citing that same article, according to that article that we cited at the top of yesterday's show, there are over 19,000 unsolved homicides in Texas. Eliza Thomas, Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison, and Amy Ayers are four of those unsolved homicide cases. When we talk about the yogurt shop case 30 years later, we need to make sure that we include some of the good stuff that happened in this story. I'm talking about the Austin community and the friends of the four girls that made a promise 
to Eliza, Jennifer, Sarah, and Amy and their families. And the promise was, we will not forget. On February 27th of 1992, just three months after the murders, local celebrities recorded a song titled, We Will Not Forget, written by local musicians and dedicated to the four slain girls. All proceeds from the song were donated to a fund that was set up to help solve the case. On June 6th of 1992, six months after the murders, the classmates of the girls at the high school set up empty chairs for Eliza and Jennifer, who would have graduated on that day. The great city of Austin, Texas, made a commitment to these four girls, their families, the community, and the persons responsible that they will not forget. And in the garage, we refuse to forget these girls as well. Now it seems that the FBI has the power to help thousands of people heal, even if it's just a little bit. And I understand that there are laws and regulations that are needed to protect the people. But here, those laws and regulations are protecting the wrong people. Take a look at these crimes. These are some of the most horrific and unspeakable acts that we have ever discussed on this show. And it's five years of existence. And all of these horrific crimes and unspeakable acts were committed in no more than a short 45-minute time period. The people protected by these laws and regulations are not people at all. They are the very worst of what humanity has to offer. Thanks for joining us here each and every week in the garage. If you're digging the music for the show, check it out for free on Spotify, Amazon Music, or Apple Music. It's free, so check it out. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the listeners this week? This week, Captain, we are recommending what I believe is the definitive book on the case that we covered this week, The Yogurt Shop Murders. And this book is called Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Lowry. And this book came out just shortly before the 25-year marker for this case and covers the murders, all the countless lives that this story has really ruined, and the evolving complications of the justice system that have frustrated the massive attempts for all these years now to find and punish those who committed this horrible, horrible crime. Check out Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Lowry. You can find that great title and many more on our website, truecrimegarage.com, and click on the recommended page. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't live. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. 
Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.